Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a well-known saying that says, repetition is the mother of learning. It's a saying that I like. If you want to become good at a new skill, you need to repeat it over and over again. If you want to become good at your times tables in math, you've got to do them over and over again. If you want to improve your three-point shot in basketball, you need to practice, practice, practice. Repetition is the mother of learning. Now, why do I bring this up? It's because today we have, by the grace of God, profession of faith. Lord willing, our brother Zachary DeWitt and our sisters Sierra Schreimer and Megan Teitzma will profess their faith and having been in my pre-confession class, these students will know something of that saying, repetition is the mother of learning. And there are some concepts that we went over repeatedly in our class, and that's because they were important, important to get right. And one of those concepts that we repeatedly returned to was the Bible's teaching on justification by faith. It's one of those things that we just got to know. It's one of those things we just got to get right. And so we return to this teaching again and again. Now, why is that? Why is justification by faith so important for us to know and get right? Well, our text this morning from Romans 5 shows us why this is. Before we read our text, we read from Romans 4, and Romans 4 is about how we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ apart from our works, and our text in Romans 5 builds off what is taught in Romans 4. So Romans 4 shows us that we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and then Romans 5, verses 1 to 5, describe to us the blessings that flow from our justification. Our text describes a rich treasure that comes with our justification in Christ. And as we hope to see this morning, these blessings are beautiful. They'll be our focus this morning. They are fitting words to focus on, also with a profession of faith. So, in light of that, I preach you God's Word this morning under the following theme. Our justification by faith results in the threefold blessing of peace hope, and love. So we'll look at the three blessings. Blessing number one, peace with God. We have peace with God. Blessing number two, we have a firm hope for the future. And blessing number three, we have a rich experience of God's love. So first of all, blessing number one, we have peace with God. Now, as I just mentioned in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul describes the teaching of justification. Justification is a legal term. It's courtroom language. Justification is about how we are declared not guilty before God the judge. Now, ordinarily, a courtroom, when you think of a courtroom, it's not really a happy place. Everything about a courtroom is serious. 
If you go to a courtroom here in Canada, you need to sit quietly. You're not allowed to take pictures or videos. Everyone must rise when the judge walks in. Everyone must refer to the judge as your honor. And if the defendant is declared guilty by the judge and declared guilty of a crime worthy of jail time, the defendant is taken away in handcuffs and goes to prison. So that's often what comes to mind when we think of a courtroom. It's, it's often not a happy place. However, there can also be moments of joy in a courtroom. If the judge finds the defendant not guilty, the defendant may be overjoyed. There's no fine to pay, no prison time to serve. And our justification before God in Jesus Christ is like that, but so much more. We are justified before God through faith in Jesus Christ. That means our sin was laid upon Christ. His righteousness is counted towards us. The fine has been paid. The the debt has been paid. The law has been kept. And it's all done by Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is happy news. And there are a number of blessings, again, that flow from this. The first blessing that flows from our justification in Christ is that we have peace with God. That's what our text says. Listen to the very first words of our text. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I cannot emphasize enough how important these words are. And this is it. This is why we need to know this stuff. This is one reason why you went to catechism for so many years. There's absolutely nothing more important than being justified by faith so that we might have peace with God. That's what we all need. See, by nature, we do not have peace with God. By our rebellion in Adam, we made ourselves, all of us, we made ourselves enemies of God. And when you die, or when Christ returns... You do not want to be an enemy of God. You see, the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, has been building to this point in his letter. In the first three chapters of Romans, the Spirit, through Paul, has been describing human sin and also God's just punishment on sinners. Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of humans. Romans 2 verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Romans 3 verse 9, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And that's why it's important that we all put our faith in Jesus Christ. Why is it important that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and that you put your faith in Jesus Christ and that you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If we did not have the cross of Christ, we would face God's wrath. 
But through faith in Jesus Christ, all this has changed. Where there was wrath and anger, now there is peace. God's holy justice has been satisfied by Christ. And so through Christ, the words of Isaiah 12 can apply to us who believe. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. The good news about this piece is that it does not depend on our feelings. Maybe we don't always feel this peace, but it's a peace that lays outside of our feelings. It's, it's a peace bought by the blood of Christ. It's an objective peace secured by Christ. It's sealed in heaven. The relationship between God and believers has been restored by Him. And the cross of Jesus Christ received my faith, it changes our position in life. Listen to verse 2 of our text. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. You know, there are many places in life that have a restricted access. You can't go into a certain place. For example, imagine one day you go to the MTS Center downtown to watch a hockey game. And you know that you can't just go into any room in that building. Many areas have restricted access. Think of the, the dressing room for the players, for example. Not just anyone can go in there. Restricted. Or for another example, taken from the Bible, think of the disciple Peter when Christ was on trial before the high priest. Peter could not gain access to the courtyard of the high priest all on his own. He had to stay outside. The apostle John, on the other hand, was known to the high priest so he could gain access to the courtyard. And Peter could only gain access through John. And that can help us understand what our text is saying to us. It's the same thing with gaining access to this place of grace that our text describes. Ordinarily, we stand on the outside. We can't come in. But through Christ, we gain access to this grace in which we now stand. Think again of the courtroom scene with God as the judge. Imagine God's courtroom has two doors behind the judge's chair. The one door has a sign over top of it that says, God's punishment. The other door has a sign over top of it that says, God's grace. And if God's verdict towards you is guilty, as it would be if we were left to ourselves. We would enter through that punishment door, and there would be no getting out. That's where we would go if left to ourselves. But through Jesus Christ, His saving work, God's declaration can be not guilty for those who repent and believe. 
God's declaration can be righteous in Christ. And so through Jesus Christ, we're ushered into that door that says God's grace. We've gained access access to it by faith. And we stand there, says our text. It's not what we deserve, but that's why it's called grace. So that's blessing number one of our justification in Christ. We have peace with God. Blessing number two is that we have a firm hope for the future. Our text says we not only gain access into this grace in which we stand, but we also rejoice in hope of the, of the glory of God. Now, what is this glory of God that our, our text is, is referring to? Well, it could refer to a number of things. First of all, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ upon our death, we can look forward to entering into heaven, in, into the glorious presence of God when we die. Think of what we confess in Lord's Day 16. Our death is not a payment for sin, but is an entrance into eternal life. And think about that. Think about the moment you die, your soul is immediately taken up to Christ, our head, where God is dwelling in glory. That must be absolutely amazing. More beautiful than anything you can imagine here on this earth. And as our text says, we can rejoice in that hope of the glory of God. The glory of God can also refer to our glorified state on the new heavens and the new earth. You see, when Christ returns, He will give us glorified bodies. Romans 8 says that God will glorify us as He glorified His Son. And in that glorified state, we'll not be able to, we will not be able to sin anymore, totally free from temptation, totally free from pain and sickness and sadness. Instead, we will glorify God with all our words and our works. And what a thing to look forward to, to rejoice in. The Apostle Paul could have another aspect of the glory of God in mind. There may be some temple and tabernacle imagery going on here. Remember the Old Testament temple and tabernacle. When they were completed, the glory of God filled those places. And Revelation 21 tells us that the new Jerusalem will be like a temple. And we too, the church of God, is the temple of God. When this temple is completed all over the world, the glory of the Lord will fill that temple. When you think of the Old Testament tabernacle, Moses could not enter there when the glory of God filled that place. It was too glorious. But in the New Jerusalem, we will experience that glory without fear. We will experience it in full measure. God will make us in such a way that we can enjoy that glory forever. Because of our justification in Christ, we can look forward in eager expectation to this glory of God. This is what you need to focus on in your life too, you who are professing your faith. Focus on that glory of God. And actually, the text can also be translated that we boast in this hope. Now, the recipients of this letter, they lived, of course, in the ancient city of Rome. 
And in the ancient world, Rome was considered a glorious city, full of political, cultural, and engineering achievements. Just think if you were to go to Rome today, that ancient Colosseum is still standing. Think of that after hundreds of years. Imagine what it looked like in all of its glory. So people who lived in Rome, they boasted of the glory of Rome. And these Christians, these new Christians, may not have had much in the world's eyes, but they could boast in a glory that was so much greater. The city that God was preparing for them was far more glorious than anything that the citizens of Rome had seen. We can boast in that glory too. Our text then switches from talking about the the future glory of God to our present sufferings. And it says we don't only boast, we don't only rejoice in the glory of God, but it says we also rejoice in our sufferings. And that is a shocking message. Rejoice in our sufferings, what kind of message is this? And that too it was sure different than the, the ancient people of Rome were used to hearing. You know, they thought suffering meant the gods were angry at them. Needed to offer some kind of sacrifice to quiet the gods' anger. There were also philosophers called the Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans taught people the best life was free of all suffering. What should you do in life? Just avoid all suffering. Pursue pleasure. And then there were the Stoics. They taught people to simply... Keep a stiff upper lip in your suffering. Don't let it get to you. You can achieve great things. But then there's our text. So completely, radically different than the people of Rome are used to hearing. Still the same today. This is what separates Christianity, too, from every other religion in the world. No one can free themselves from the suffering in this broken world. That includes you who are professing your faith. Professing your faith does not mean that the rest of your faith life will be easy. Trials and hardships come to us all. But our text, our text tells us good news when it comes to suffering. Christians can rejoice in their suffering, and why is that? It's because our justification in Christ has transformed our suffering. Remember, suffering entered this world because of sin. Without Christ, our suffering would be a payment for our sin. But for believers, we have Christ who paid them for us, our sins. So that payment for sin does not take away our suffering in life, but it does transform it. Now this message, we can rejoice in our sufferings, maybe it's hard for you to grapple with as you sit here this morning. You know, rejoice in my sufferings. Why don't you walk a mile in my shoes and see if you feel like rejoicing? Please understand what our text, what our text is saying. 
It's not saying that we rejoice in the suffering itself. For example, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that the Lord gave him a painful thorn in his flesh. A messenger of Satan was sent by God to torment him. That's what it says, torment him. And Paul did not say to himself, yes, I'm being tormented, this is fantastic. No, we don't rejoice in the suffering itself. But we can rejoice because of what it produces. Listen to the words of our text. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So first of all, endurance or perseverance. See, so often God uses suffering to purify us from our sins. Sometimes He uses it to help us break free from certain sins that have plagued us for so long. Other times He uses suffering to simply mold us into the image of Christ, His Son. It also helps us to rely on God. You know, it's so often... Probably can relate to that in your own life. When things are good, we think we have it all together. We can rely on our own strength, and then suffering comes and it shatters that illusion. But by this, we learn to rely on the Lord all the more every day of our lives. Then we are strengthened for further trials that God sends our way. We can be sure He will help us through the next trial. So it produces perseverance. Then the text says perseverance, in turn, produces character. This is about Christian maturity, about growing up in our faith. We learn to be patient as God is patient. We learn to trust God through all kinds of perplexing circumstances. Consider Abraham, who's mentioned in Romans 4. He demonstrated this kind of character. He was a hundred years old, still childless. But he trusted the promises of God. Over time, his faith grew stronger, even though he had weakness. This is the kind of character God wants from us. You know, perhaps when you were young, maybe you too, your parents made you do all kinds of chores around the house, Maybe they told you at certain points that would help build character in you. Of course, when you're young, you never like those character-building moments. But you know what? It's good for us. brings us to maturity. That's often what God is doing in our lives as well, bringing us to this maturity. Christian character is also good because it produces hope, the hope of eternal life. That's what our text says. We must understand what this hope does not refer to. This hope is not wishful thinking where we say, no, oh boy, I, I sure hope this eternal life thing works out. No. Christian hope is a sure confidence that God will bring this future glory about because it's based on His sure promises. And the Holy Spirit says through Paul in our text that this hope will not put us to shame. 
means it will not disappoint us. And that can happen in life, right? Sometimes we can feel ashamed because we trusted in something or maybe boasted in something and turned out to be false, right? It let us down. But that will never happen for those who trust God and His promises in Jesus Christ and live by those promises. Right at the end of the day, no one will be able to look at you, shake their heads at you, and say, you know, why did you ever put your hope in such a thing as the gospel of Christ? How foolish of you. No. That will never happen. And Christian hope is the beginning of the eternal joy we have in eternal life. Think of Abraham. At times, maybe his faith was wavering. But God strengthened him. It seemed like those promises were fading. But Abraham's hope did not disappear. And was Abraham put to shame? Was he disappointed? No. It's the same for us who live by faith in God's promises. And that's great news. It's the kind of hope we need in this broken life. After all, so many of our hopes in this life can be dashed. It can happen so often. You hope for better health, and you get more sickness. You hope for financial stability, and you get more financial stress. You hope for a relationship, and you get more loneliness. You hope for relief in a new job, and you get more difficulty. You hope for the conversion of a loved one, and they give you more stubborn unbelief. So many dashed hopes in this life. But this hope is different. The hope of eternal life will not disappoint us. It will not put us to shame. Why not? It's because of what our text says at the end. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Brings us to our last point. Our hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And this is probably the greatest blessing of all. It makes me think, as a contrast, the book of Revelation we read about bowls of God's wrath. And these bowls of God's wrath are poured out onto the unrepentant world. And how scary that is. But here, the situation is completely different. God, as it were, has bowls full of His love, and He pours them full strength into the hearts of believers. There's a lavishness described in our text, poured into our hearts. He's not stingy with His love. The same love God has for His Son, He now pours down upon us, His children. 
See, there's more to our justification than God, the judge, declaring us not guilty. It's like the judge, after pronouncing someone not guilty, gets out of his chair, runs to the defendant, throws his arms around him. The judge then says to him, you're now my child, come live with me in my house and enjoy my love. And that's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's proven by the fact that God has given us His Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is a spirit of adoption by whom we call out, Abba, Father. That's what the Bible says. And God does not give His Spirit to His enemies, but to His children. That's why the Holy Spirit gives us confidence that our hope will not be put to shame. God's love has been poured out. Now to end, commentators are somewhat divided about what the phrase, the love of God, actually means. The majority of them believe that it refers to God's love for us. And that's certainly how I take it. It's what the where the text seems to be going. However, the words love of God by themselves could refer to our love for God. And the text would then be saying that the Holy Spirit has worked love for God in our hearts. Now, even though God's love for us is probably the intended meaning in the phrase the love of God, perhaps a slight ambiguity here is put there on purpose. For are not all these blessings the very things that drive our love for God? How could we not love the one who so lavishly loved us first? And I encourage you to do that more and more. Love your God who has saved you in Jesus Christ. Love Him with all of your heart soul, and mind. Amen. Let us now respond to the preaching of God's Word by singing together hymn 71, the stanza 1 and 2.